So first of all, Baruch Shech Yonu, Vigyonu Vikiyamanu Uzman Azeh, blessed be Hashem who has kept us, preserved us, brought us to this time. This is a big deal because I think the first share that I started to give here at Chabad of the Five Towns was this, or an earlier version of this class, a weekly Tanya class. Watch out for the feedback when we turn it up. You're not feeding back? Okay. There's an earlier version of this Tanya class. Yeah, it's feeding back a little bit. Yeah. One second. I'm going to play around with it. It's a fine line between loud enough for people to hear and like this. So, Baruch uh, Hashem, that, that class finished Tanya. We went through the whole Tanya. Well, what I'm I should explain what I mean by the whole Tanya. Um, this is the Tanya. The Tanya actually that you're looking at here is composed of five volumes. But very often when we refer to Tanya, we mean the first volume, which is technically called uh, Sefer Shalbeninim, the book of the intermediate or the average or the ordinary person. And it's a 53-chapter guidebook in personal development and spiritual growth. There are four other volumes as well. And uh, we studied from those as well in this class. But uh, the, the main objective when we started this, I think it, was, I think it was four years ago, is to go through the 53 chapters. And we did. We did go through the 53 chapters, Baruch Hashem. But I want to explain... The, what I mean by going through the chapters. First of all, Tanya is a book that you never finish. I don't know anyone who finished Tanya. One of the nicknames that Chassidim gave to the Tanya is the Tereshi Bechsav Shel the written Torah of Hasidic teachings. And there are many reasons why it has that, uh, that nickname. But one reason that's given is that just like the Chumash, the written Torah, five books of Moses, everybody learns it, relearns it, relearns it, relearns it from the little kid in Cheder to the biggest scholar. So too, Tanya is that kind of a book that whatever level you're on from the, the most, uh, most advanced to the most elementary, it's a kind of book that you go over and over and over and over. And uh, I've heard also people say that Tanya is a book that gets smarter every time you learn it. <laughs> like, oh, that's what it was saying. That's really smart. Yeah. So this is. Uh. So we went through the Tanya, but I'll tell you the way that we did it. We tried to cover a chapter every class. And sometimes we covered multiple chapters of class. There were a couple of places where it took us more than one class to cover a chapter, but basically the structure was a chapter of class. And we did not learn it inside. We did not read the actual text. And there's a reason why we took that approach. We took that approach because personally, I have found that many times people study Tanya um, and they don't see the forest for the trees. Meaning they've studied the Tanya line by line and they can tell you what individual parts of Tanya mean, 
but they didn't get the big picture, the flow. There's a, an exquisitely organized system in these 53 chapters. And everything is exactly in its place, exactly structurally where it needs to be in order to create the strongest possible uh, building. And if you study it, you know, microscopically, you know, with a microscope, you can do that. You can study, Tanya is such a rich book that you can study, you can spend a whole class on a word with multiple meanings of every single word. But what happens is very often you lose the, the big picture, the context, the overall context. And since Tanya, after all, is a practical book, it's a guidebook, it's, it's a manual. So it's a little bit, uh, I, I consider it, personally, I feel like if a book is a manual and it's studied so up close that I don't get the basic instructions. So maybe I've gained in depth, but I'm not, uh, I'm sort of missing the, the main point. So what, what do we do? We, we said, we're gonna give everyone the big picture. We're gonna, I mean, those who took this class last time, four years ago, okay? It's years later now. You remember the basic structure and flow of Tanya, right? I mean, it makes sense to you. There's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end, there's a, okay? We really emphasized that. And I think that in every class we would retrace our steps. This is how we got to where we are right now. And this is, this is the flow, this is the buildup. And uh, that's very, very, very important. What I wanna try to do, we'll see, you know, uh, I'll feel it out. Every class is, a, is an organism, is a living being of its own. So we'll see what happens here. Uh, what I would like to try to do is go a little bit slower. Uh, not too slow, but <laughs> uh, slow enough that maybe we can get some more of the details than last time. So what I'm going to try to accomplish today is an introduction. If we get into the text, it'll probably just be the title page. But I want to give you a general introduction to the book, whether you've learned the book many, many times before, or you never learned it at all, or you never even heard of it. Same introduction. The Baal Shem Tov was the first leader of the movement that later became known as Chassidus, Chassidism. And the Baal Shem Tov primarily had 60 students. The Baal Shem Tov influenced thousands, tens of thousands in his lifetime, perhaps hundreds of thousands all over Eastern Europe. But I'm talking about proper disciples, 60 disciples. And one of those disciples was the Magid of Mezrich, who became the, the Baal Shem Tov's successor. And he in turn had 120 students, double the number of the, of the Baal Shem Tov. And again, he influenced many, many people, but uh, we're talking about proper disciples who considered themselves uh, official students. So there were 120. And of these 120 disciples of the Magid, we basically had the all-star team of Hasidism. We had basically the fathers of all the Hasidic dynasties. Every Hasidic court can trace itself to one of these students. Um, you know, Levi Yitzchok Berdichever, 
Reb Zusha, Reb Elimelech, Reb Shmelkem in Nicholsburg, Reb Pinchas the Balafla. We had the Chayzim in Lublin. Everyone from that uh, generation was basically, I mean, it, it's hard to fathom, it's hard to imagine what those shiurim, what those classes looked like. You had the Magid learning with these saintly geniuses, each one of whom became the father of another strain of Hasidic thought. And uh, I feel bad that I mentioned a few names and I left out names. And it's because uh, it, it's, it's, each one of them was such a, a, a tzaddik and, and, a, and a goin. I mean, there was the, leaving out names and Mandahoradakar, the Chernobyl. There's so many of them who were the uh, just unique and unparalleled. And each one of them had their own style. And in a certain way, although each one of them had their own style, it was sort of understood that the Alter Rebbe was the odd man out. He was like different than the rest of them. First of all, culturally, he was different. In fact, they even had a nickname for him, which they didn't like if other people called it to him, but inside they called him Der Litvak. They called him Der Litvak, the Lithuanian. And that's because of where he came from. He came from, uh, he came from Lyazhna, and, uh, which is uh, white Russia, which was Lithuania, as opposed to what? As opposed to Poland. <laughs> They mostly, they came from Poland. They had a different way of talking. I mean, historically, we know about uh, how he pronounced things differently. You know, you say Gut Shabbos or Git Shabbos. And uh, so that's one difference. But also, it wasn't just a cultural difference. It was an ideological difference as well. And they were all teaching Teres of Shemtiv in a way that they felt was, was true. They were all filtering the teachings of the Magid, who was filtering the teachings of the Balshamtov as faithfully as they, as they could. But each one of them had a different, a different spin on things. So generally speaking, the, the style of the other Talmideha Magid, of the other disciples of the Magid, was characterized as Chagas. Chagas is an acronym for the three emotional spheroids in Kabbalah, Chesed, Gvura, Tiferes. Kindness, severity, and compassion. Those are the three main emotional faculties. And the Alter Rebbe, of course, this acronym has become famous. It's become synonymous with a, with a movement. It's become synonymous with uh, people looking for Shabbos hospitality. <laughs> I always think it's ironic that this name which is actually the name of a mystical school of esoteric thought has become synonymous with uh, a place to find Chuln and Schnitzel on Shabbos when you're, when you're traveling. But uh, you know what the acronym is? Not Chagas, but Chabad. Yeah, Chabad. Chabad is Chochma Binadas. The three intellectual faculties, Chachma Binadas, wisdom. We call it, I mean, in a clumsy translation, we call it wisdom, understanding, knowledge. And uh, 
what's the difference between the Chabad approach and the Chagas approach? It's the, it's the difference between education and inspiration. So the Chagas approach is excitement and using emotionalism to get closer to Hashem. I mean, the end objective, everyone agrees, is to get closer to Hashem. But uh, the question is the path, how to get closer to Hashem. So one approach is an emotional approach. Inspiration, feeling. The other is the educational approach, the Chabad approach, which is you'll learn something, you'll think about it, and you won't be inspired right away. No, who says you'll be inspired right away? But if you'll sit with the thought long enough, there's a trickle-down effect. Remember Reaganomics? So there's a trickle-down effect. And Chabad will lead to Chagas, that through emotion, through intellectual discovery, you will reach emotional inspiration. But um, the emotional inspiration is not the initial state. By the way, I mentioned before, it's, it's ironic that the Chabad, which is this, not only a school of, of esoteric wisdom, but a very intellectual school of, of, of esoteric wisdom became synonymous with, uh, with Shabbos hospitality. So how do you explain that? You wanna know how to explain that? I'll explain it to you very clearly. Because if you learn Tanya and you understand what it says and you really meditate on it, it will affect you to the point where you will live according to those ideas and then you'll end up giving free cholent to people who are traveling through your town and need a free place for Shabbos. Not that the hospitality is the, is the point. It's not the, that's not the goal. That's the Evan Abaychen. That's the litmus test. That if you learned it properly and you absorbed it and it affected you intellectually and then emotionally, then it'll come out behaviorally and it'll manifest itself in various ways, including perhaps primarily as, as loving your fellow Jew and even to the point of self-sacrifice, loving your fellow Jew. But all that humanitarian stuff that I think Chabad is very well known for, that is like the final manifestation, the most outward manifestation of a very deep school of mystical thought. So when we're, when we're studying Teres Chabad, when we're studying Tanya, we're studying the deep, theological, philosophical, ideological ideas that if you absorb them, they would cause you perhaps to move out in the middle of nowhere and host people like, oh, this week's Parshish Lechucha, you know, Avram Avino had the first Chabad house. He set up a tent with Sara and it was open to everybody. All four, four, uh, in the four directions, they had openings in the tent and everybody could come and eat. And then uh, while they were uh, enjoying the uh, chicken soup, he would put in a little dvar Torah, and then he would ask them to bench. So Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu was uh, just like happy-go-lucky, jovial fellow. He just a social guy, social butterfly. That's why he wanted to open up his tent and hang out with people. Is that Avram Avinu? No. That's the Avram Avinu from the coloring book. 
Avram Avinu was, was, was Einstein before Einstein. Avram Avinu was a kid who had no education. He looked at the world and scientifically, his genius mind came to the conclusion that there had to be only one power in the universe, okay? So please, Avram Avinu was not some happy-go-lucky social guy who wanted to uh, bring out a, a tray of kogel. He was a genius who looked at reality and was able to figure out with, without any education, he was able to figure out that there must be one power in the universe. It all must be oneness. And he figured this out because he was Av Ram, Av is father, Ram means exalted. Father in Kabbalah means Chachmah. Av Ram was exalted Chachmah, exalted wisdom. He was a genius. He was such a genius, no one could relate to him, which is why he had to become Av Raham with the hay, which is Av Hamayn Goyim, a, uh, a leader of the multitudes. So in order to become uh, the orator, to be able to give over his message, he needed the hay. But the point is that Avram was a genius. First and foremost, he was a genius. He was the greatest genius ever lived. He had to figure it all out on his own. Like a guy invents engineering and nobody taught him calculus. He just figured it out. So my point is that Avraham was a genius. And then the outer manifestation of that intellectual depth was that he was nice to people. But please make no mistake and think that this book is going to tell you um, recipes you know, 10 ways to make uh, brisket for your Shabbos guests. No. This book is gonna tell you how to understand yourself, understand your purpose, understand your inner makeup on a very deep level. In that sense, a lot of times it's compared to modern psychology and the way that it penetrates and uh, gets to the bottom of what makes us tick. It's also going to speak about uh, theology, about the, the nature of, of God's existence, although that's more of an emphasis in the second volume of Tanya, but certainly it's something that comes up where... Uh, where, where, where apropos in the first volume. So there's, there's, there's some theology here, the nature of, 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 of Hashem's reality and his oneness, uh, the, the nature of, of the Torah and the mitzvahs, what are the mechanisms of Torah and mitzvahs, how do they operate, how do they connect us to Hashem, um, the, the mechanisms by which the physical plane is uplifted and refined and ultimately transformed into a messianic world of perfection. All of that kind of stuff is going to come up. So it's deep stuff. It's very deep stuff. And if you study it and you internalize it, then yeah, the outer manifestation is it's going to change the way that you treat other people and it'll change the way you study Torah It'll change the way that you daven it'll change the way that you do business it'll change the way that you deal with 
a moral dilemma. It affects us in all types of ways, in all types of ways. But primarily what I want to explain to you is this is a deep book. It's a very deep book. And we're going to talk about very deep concepts. And a lot of times people, a lot of times when you're studying Tanya, one of the, one of the challenges is, okay, well, uh, how is this relevant? Or isn't this too technical? And you might not have had that experience if you took the class from me last time because I glossed over a lot of that stuff because I didn't bother you with it. But it might happen this time. We'll see. Again, I'll test the waters. I'll see uh, my style. Just so you know, I like to push the class to the brink of annoyance to the point where you almost hate it. It's like a good trainer, right? Everyone can see that I work out a lot. So, you know, I, <laughs> no, I, I, <laughs> I, I worked out once. No, I did once. I got the gist. No, because I needed to be able to refer to it as a parable. So I got the experience. But, you know, a good trainer pushes you to the brink. Where you, oh, I hate this guy, right? So, but then afterwards, no, I don't really hate him. No, it's good. It's good. I'm getting in shape. So I do want to push you cognitively. Cognitively, I do want to push you. So, um, yeah, there may be points where you'll, you'll struggle with the material. Cognitively. Also, emotionally, I might say some things that offend you. That's okay. Please, everyone know it's okay to be offended. I know in today's day and age, we have a very thin skin just collectively. And, I, and I'm not making fun of that. I think we are more sensitive today. And I think we should recognize that. And we should try to honor that as much as possible and try to be as sensitive to each other as possible. But I, I just want to warn you, there may be things that are offensive to you. And if they are offensive, let's just talk through them. Just say that that, that, that's, that, that offends my sensibilities. Um, you know, I'm uncomfortable with that idea. That's okay. You could say that and we'll talk through it and we'll see if we can get you comfortable with it. Um, but primarily I'm talking about being cognitively challenged. You might say this idea is too difficult to, uh, to wrap my head around. I don't see the practicality of it. What I'm asking you to do is just work with me, work. This is not, uh, this is not entertainment. This is not Chagas. It's not inspiration. It's Chabad. It's educational. It's hard work. Uh, and, and it's going to feel like hard work. Okay. So a little bit of background about the Tanya, historically speaking. I told you that it was, well, I didn't even say yet that the Alta Rebbe wrote this book. I, I implied it. Okay. So I told you the Balshamta was the first Rebbe of Chassidus, and then his student and successor, the, the Magid, had in turn many disciples. Of the 120 students, I told you that the Alter Rebbe was the one who followed more of the Chabad approach, the intellectual approach. The Alter Rebbe was the one who wrote this book called Tanya, which systemized the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov. What do I mean by it systemized it? It took Hasidic teachings and organized them into a, a very specific approach as to how to serve Hashem. In other words, as opposed to just being ideas that you have to figure out how to apply them, the Al-Tarebbe put it together. He organized it. Principally, that was his 
job as the author was to organize these ideas to the extent that the Alter Rebbe does not refer to himself as the author of the Tanya, he, he, he refers to himself as the compiler, the malakit of Tanya. And he says his job was simply that of organizing. Now there's a lot of different ways of organizing. You have a lot of information, you could organize it like an encyclopedia. You could just put it as, as articles. And when you, you organize by alphabetical order, you go look it up each article. And there's no flow from one essay to the next. The Alter Rebbe organized Tanya as a manual, as a guidebook. So it's like instructions. Call it even a recipe. When you read a recipe, a recipe is in order. Why? Because it's procedural. The purpose of a recipe isn't merely just to find out about these ingredients. It's to know how to actually use the ingredients in a particular order, in a particular way, in order to produce certain results. So the Alter Rebbe took the teachings of the Baal Shem Tev and of the Magid, and he organized them into this procedural manual. It took him 20 years. He was working on Tanya for 20 years. Now, why did it take him 20 years? I told you before that Tanya is often referred to as Tere Shibich Sav. And I told you there's many reasons why it has that nickname. One of the reasons it has that nickname is that every single letter is precise. That is not so in all Hasidic texts. We have other writings from the Alter Rebbe. We have Lakute Taira and Taira Those are Maimorim, Hasidic discourses generally on the Parsha. And they are not that precise. In fact, they're not edited by the Alter Rebbe. They, uh, they were transcripts from his disciples, from his grandson. But the Tanya was written in a way to be extremely precise to the, to the extent, not only word for word, but every letter, to the point where sometimes, you know, in, in, in Lashon Kodesh, you can have a word where it's spelled male or chaser, like with avav or without avav, it's optional whether to put it in or not. Even details like that, the Alter Rebbe was meticulous about when writing Tanya. There's a story that when the Alter Rebbe was in this 20 year period of authoring Tanya, he was sitting at his desk and his brother, Rabbi Yehuda Leib, came in and he asked, uh, you know, what's going on? And the Alter Rebbe says, for six weeks, I am toiling over the letter Vav. I'm putting it in, I'm taking it out. There's a letter, a vav is, uh, is, a, is the uh, conjunction ant in the holy tongue. So he says, there's this, there's this letter vav, and I'm putting it in, I'm taking it out, and I'm trying to decide which meaning is more exact. We have by tradition, by the way, what was that vav? It was the beginning of Perigmem Aleph, the beginning of chapter 41, where... Uh, However, it must be made a constant reminder. You have to remember always what is the beginning of the service of Hashem and its root and its source. 
So initially, the Altarebbe thought maybe the Ikra Shorsha, but he settled on the Ikra Ve Shorsha. <laughs> What's the difference? It's the difference between the beginning of the service of Hashem and its root and its source, or that's one way, or the, the, the beginning of the service of Hashem and its root source. You say, what's the difference between and its root and its source or and its root source? It's a big difference, a huge difference. Anyways, the Alter Rebbe was toiling on that vav for six weeks. And he told his brother that that's when he writes Sefer Shalbain in him, that's how it goes because he said, before I add even one letter, I review the entire Sefer in my mind. So think about that. He was thinking about the entire Sefer before the placement of every single letter. That's why, by the way, I developed the whole Tanya map approach, which has various different iterations. I don't know if people have seen, you can kind of see in this the picture over here in the back. This picture is a picture, it's funny. This, this is a picture of me sitting right here at this spot. And you can see in the background a little bit the Tanya map. I don't know, you can, you can see in the background, will take this. You see in the background a little bit that that multicolored uh, bunch of squares. That's the Tanya map. The Tanya map is a learning tool that I made, I think about 20 years ago. But uh, it visually lays out the flow and the main points of the 53 chapters of Tanya. So I, I started the Tanya map approach because I felt like this. If the Alter Rebbe reviewed the entire Tanya in his mind before placing even one letter, that means every single letter of Tanya is connected to the overall big picture. So therefore, when I learn Tanya, I should also learn it that way, that before I read a letter, that I should have in mind the overall big picture. But I realized I couldn't do that. I couldn't manage that. So then I asked myself, well, how much would I have to zoom out? How much would I have to like sort of do Google Earth and get a satellite view in order to have quote unquote the whole Tanya? When the Alter Rebbe said he thought of the whole Tanya, he meant the whole Tanya in detail. But uh, could I have an, uh, like a, a sketch view of Tanya where I could sort of think about the contours in the most basic way, the most basic flow? Like, uh, you know, imagine going up into the helicopter and looking down and seeing the lay of the land. So you don't see the trees anymore, but oh, you see there's a forest over there. And you see the shape of the forest and there's the forest and there's the city and there's the, there's the water, right? So you get the basic lay of the land. So that's why I took the Tanya approach. And the last time we did this course, it was very much the Google Earth satellite view where we just got the basic gist of things, the basic flow. But the point of it is because when the Alter Rebbe was writing Tanya, he wrote it in such a way where every single letter is placed deliberately in context in relationship with all of the rest of, of the Sefer. When the Alter Rebbe finally published Tanya, maybe I should back up and tell you that Tanya existed as pamphlets of manuscripts for many years. And it was not published, meaning printed as a book on the printing press until 1796. What happened though, is that these pamphlets, these handwritten pamphlets were being 
in some cases deliberately forged because, because there was contention at that time um, between Hasidism and its opponents and people were suspicious of Hasidism. So some people wanted to color Tanya as heretical and they deliberately falsified certain versions and circulated those versions. That's sort of what pushed the Alter Rebbe to make an official printed version because some Hasidim came back from a fair and uh, they, they at a booth there, I guess there was a like a Svodom shop booth and they bought some pamphlets and they brought it back and it was it had errors which said heretical things. So the Alter Rebbe said, no more of this. We're having an official version and uh, don't, don't look at any of you know, like nobody's allowed to copy and don't even look at the, the unofficial versions. This is it. This is the official version. Um, so that came out in 1796 as a published book. Since that time, Tanya has been printed over and over and over again. Um, as we mentioned, there are five volumes. There's also a history about at what point those different volumes were added to Tanya. And we have the work as we know it today. We have the version as we know it today. But uh, during the past 200 and how many years is it now since 1796, 225 years, 26? What is it now? 225 years? I think 225. In the past 225 years, since the book has been published, it's a book that people continue to go back to over and over and over again. And to revisit and to find new levels of insight. The Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, was a descendant of the, the, the author of the Tanya, direct uh, descendant of the, of the Alter Rebbe. So the Rebbe Rashab said that our comprehension of Tanya is akin to the understanding that a goat has when he stares at the moon. Meaning, <laughs> that there's, there's a degree of depth that we're never going to be able to fathom. And nevertheless, whatever amount that we can understand is extremely healing and transformative. And it really, it, it makes the student a different person. tell you a, a, a story that took place in, in modern times. There was a chassid from Crown Heights, Reb Zalman Gerari. He went on a business trip and he was, he went, he, he made it to JFK and they canceled the flight. It was an international flight and they didn't have another flight till the next day. So if you've heard of the Tzavov Reb Yehuda Chassid, Reb Yehuda Chassid wrote, uh, instructions, customs 
that are considered, uh, it's considered scrupulous to follow. Like don't polish your shoes on the day of a, of a journey. You know, you heard these things, like don't plug up a window or a door in a house, that kind of stuff. So he, uh, yeah. So one of the things he said, these are not halacha, but many people try to follow it. One of the things he said was, if you go on a journey, if you leave the house on a journey, you don't come back to the house until you've gone on your journey. So he went to JFK and they canceled the flight. He didn't know what to do because what should he do? Get a, get a hotel by the airport? Or can he come back to Crown Heights and sleep in his own bed and go back to JFK the next day? So he called the Rebbe's office and the Rebbe's secretary, Rabbi Chadukov, answered the phone and uh, Rabbi Gerari explained his plight. Rabbi Chadukov said he's going to ask the Rebbe. So he gets back on the phone and he says, the Rebbe says that you should study a chapter of Tanya and then go home. Because when you study a chapter of Tanya, it's transformative. And you will not be the same person you were before you studied it. Hence, it will not be you going back home. It'll be as if you are a new person going into this place for the first time. And that's what he did. He studied a chapter of Tanya and then he went home. So the next day, when he was about to leave on his trip for the second time, he gets a call. He answers the phone. It's Rabbi Chadukov calling him. And Rabbi Chadukov says, I have a message for you from the Rebbe, which means it was pretty serious that the Rebbe not only responded when Rabbi Garari called, but now the Rebbe is following up. The Rebbe is taking his own initiative to follow up and call back the next day. It must mean it's pretty serious. So the Rabbi Chadukov says, the Rebbe wants to make sure that you know what he said yesterday, he meant that seriously, that it was not a gleiche vertel. It wasn't a, a cute saying. It wasn't, it wasn't meant to be cute. It was serious. I mean, it wasn't a trick. It wasn't like, a, you know, a loophole. So the study of Tanya is transformative. And yeah, we'll never understand it properly. And I've had this experience. I'm telling you, I don't know how many times I went through this book. I don't know how many times I've taught this book. And every time I realize <clears throat> how little I understood it properly the last time. Every time I say, how was I teaching it last time? I didn't even understand what it was saying. But that's inevitable with a book like Tanya. We constantly understand it in a new way, in a deeper way. If that's not happening, then there's something wrong. Okay, so let's, let's maybe try to do the title page. And if you want to get a Tanya to follow along, so this is like a regular Tanya from Kahos. Uh, just regular, no commentary, no nothing, no English. It's just the actual holy text. If you want English, I recommend then the, the bilingual Tanya, also from Kohos. And this is nothing more than the original Hebrew. Actually, the, the, the whole point of this Tanya is that on one side is the, the page 
actual the actual Tanya page on one side, like the actual Surah Sadaf, the, the image, how the actual Tanya looks. And then on the other page is the English, and it's just a straight translation. And there are footnotes with uh, sources, a little, little bit of explanation, not so much, yeah? Is the Tanya map available publicly? Is the Tanya map available for sale? Should be on the Kohos website. There's two versions of it. There's a wall map. Come to my house, you see a big wall map. And then there's a handheld one that you can fold up like an actual map. But it should be on the Kohos website, the Tanya map. Why is the Tanya called Tanya? It's actually not called Tanya. Yeah, we call it Tanya. You're going to find that. It's not called Tanya. We call it Tanya. It's not even called Tanya. Okay. <laughs> we call it that because that's the first word of the first chapter, but it's not what it's called. You're going to find out what it's called. Um, okay. So, like I said, if you want to get a copy, Kohos has, they should have uh, Tanya's in print. And uh, I highly recommend just a regular Tanya, no commentary, no nothing, no bells, no whistles, just a straight up Tanya. Okay, so let's, let's try to do the title page. We have a few minutes. Okay. Sefer Lakute Amorim. This book has a title, it's called a book of compiled sayings. So it's not called Tanya. It's called Lukoti Amorim, a book of compiled sayings. Like I told you, the Alter Rebbe was an organizer. He systemized the teachings of Hasidus. Chelek Rishoy, the first volume. Remember we said there are five volumes of Tanya. Hanikra B'Shem, which is called, meaning this volume is called, Sefer Shel Beinonim. The book of the intermediate or the average or the ordinary or the regular person. What does that mean? There will be a lengthy, lengthy exposition about what this means. We'll get to that. Okay, so, so far we have a name for the whole book. What's the name of the whole book? which means book of compiled sayings. Excellent. The name of this volume of the 53 chapters is called Sefer Shalbaninim, a book for the intermediate average person. What, what, what's an average person? I don't know yet. I don't know. We'll find out. Milukot mipi sforim umipi sofrim kedeshe elyei nishmasim eidim compiled from books and sages who are in heaven. Books and sages, books and sages. There are those who say the books mean the written books that influenced the Alter Rebbe, meaning authors who he did not learn from directly, but who influenced him through their written words, such as the Shalah, or the Maharal, who was the ancestor of the Alter Rebbe. So they are pre-Hasidic works. Shalah and Maharal are pre-Hasidic, but very much have many of the seeds of the uh, Hasidic teachings. And who would be the teachers? Well, the teachers obviously primarily would be the Magid, 
the Alter Rebbe's Rebbe, the Maggid who we discussed. Also, one of the senior disciples of the Maggid was in some ways a Rebbe to the Alter Rebbe, Rebbe Mendel Paradokar, who was the leader of the Hasidic Aliyah. He brought a community of Jews from Eastern Europe to the Holy Land and started a settlement there, originally in Tzfas and later in Tveria. So the Alter Rebbe is saying, I compiled a com compilation of sayings from great books and teachers who I have known. Again, he's saying, this is not my Chiddush. This is not my idea. I'm just the organizer. I'm just the one who made a system out of it. Meyusad al haposak, based on the verse. The book is based on the verse. What does that mean? For it is very near to you, this matter, this thing. What is this thing? Most commentaries say the Torah itself. In your mouth, in, in your mouth, in your heart, that you may do it. So this, this book is based on a scriptural verse which says, it is very near to you, meaning accessible, attainable, to fulfill the entire Torah in your mouth, in your heart, in your action. And it's a little bit of a hint here. What is the book about? It's about practical application. It's about something that is attainable. It's about something that, uh, well, let's link this to another word that we haven't fully figured out yet, but the Seva Shalbaninim and the Kikar Velacha Basically, we're speaking to an ordinary person and we're telling you something that is karif to you, something that's attainable, it's near to you. What is that plan of action? I don't know yet, but he's laying out from the title page, look, I compiled inspirational ideas from the generations and I systemized it in a way that you could take action and you could actually achieve something here. Okay. Levar hated, he says, to explain well, how is it very close? In other words, the Torah says, it is, very clear, it is very near to you. It's a statement. The Pasuk just says it's near to you. Okay, I believe it. If it says it in Torah, I know it's true. But how? It, because last time I tried it, it didn't feel very near to me. So the al Rebbe says, this book is going to explain not only is it going to explain, he says, Levar hative to explain well. This book is going to make it very clear how Torah observance is attainable. In a long way, and a short way, with the help of the one above. What does that mean in a long way and a short way? So this is a turn of phrase which actually is taken from the Gemara. It's a story about a Tana who talks about a clever child where the Tana asked the child directions to the city. And the child said, do you want the short long way or the long short way? And the Tana seized upon the first word. And he said, give me the short long way because he heard short. That was the main thing in his mind. And it was direct but then it was insurmountable. There were obstacles he couldn't get through. So he came back and said, I can't get access to the city. 
He says, oh, then you want the long short way. He says, I told you it was short, but long. You want what's long, but short. Long, but short, it's very circuitous, but ultimately it leads to the city. So what's the idea here? Remember I told you before, Chagas and Chabad? Chagas and Chabad? So Chagas is a short, long way. It's short because it works very quickly. You don't have to study. You don't have to stretch yourself cognitively. There's no deep concepts to, to, to learn or to meditate upon. It, it, it works, you know? You get inspired, you get excited. And uh, so it's short. Problem is, it's like an energy drink. <laughs> How long does it last, right? It's not, it's not sustainable. So it's long because you got to keep doing it over and over again. It's artificial. Then there's a long, short way. It's long because you got to study, you got to discuss, you got to figure out what it's talking about. Then you got to meditate on it until you actually own it. And it takes a long time. This is not easy work, Tanya, Chabad. It's, it's grueling. It's intellectually grueling. It's exhausting in many, in many ways. So it's a long way, but it's short because after you've internalized it, well, now it's yours. Now it's yours. Now you can call upon it at any, at any time. Which is also, by the way, going back to what we talk about, if you learn Tanya, it'll make you give free cholent to from people on Shabbos when they want to go on vacation. That guy's only going on vacation. He wouldn't live there. How, how could you live there and remain a loyal Jew? You know how? Because if you, do, if you do the long, short way, if you do the long way, long way means you internalize things. So once you've internalized it, it's yours. Now you can take it anywhere. See, if you're relying upon inspiration, then you have to be near the well of inspiration. You cannot go far from it because you need to constantly re-boost. But if you're doing the long, short way, meaning the Chabad style of educating yourself, rewiring your thinking, well, then once you've been rewired, then that becomes, that becomes how you think. It becomes who you are. Okay, so that's the title page. I said we're very from about ending on time. We're a minute late. But in the we'll start with uh, the introduction next week. Thank you. Thank you.